0: Hi everyone! And welcome back to Historical Friction, a podcast about retelling the past and reframing the present through pop culture and fiction. It's Abigail, and today, Alice, Helen, and I are discussing Yorgos Lanthimos' 2018 film, The Favourite. This dark comedy is set circa 1711 and explores the relationships between Queen Anne, played by Olivia Colman, Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, played by Rachel Weisz, and Abigail Hill, who later marries and becomes Abigail Masham, played by Emma Stone. A bit of a warning. The film touches on infant mortality, and we do briefly discuss how Queen Anne's relationship to motherhood and infant mortality affected her life, so just know that that is part of today's episode. You can find our podcast on Twitter at History Friction, you can email us at historicalfrictionpodcast at gmail.com, and we also have a Patreon, where we've just started putting out monthly digests with sneak peeks of upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes looks at the lives of your intrepid podcast hosts. We're always grateful for any support you can give to make our podcast run better. Currently, we're hoping to soon have better quality microphones and a customized theme song. Thanks for all of your support and on to the show.
1: So we watched The Favourite, which is absolutely unhinged. I love this movie. I'm so glad we finally got to watch it. And I feel like this is the perfect kind of antithesis to Marie Antoinette. So I'm so excited to talk about today's film. (laughs) So true,
2: it's Marie Antoinette's goth cousin. Yes.
1: (laughs) I first saw this in the cinema and re-watching it for the episode, I was like, this is a lot darker than I remember it being, but I love it just as much. I had the exact
2: same experience actually. I really enjoyed it. I went to it like as a a girls night out kind of event and it was sort of raucous and joyous to watch it in the cinema and having this follow up experience which was equally good and equally intense was like a roller coaster ride of intense emotion.
0: Yeah, I agree. I also saw it in the cinema when it came out and Revisiting it. I was very excited to revisit it, first of all. I couldn't wait to rewatch it. And I agree with Alice. It definitely was darker than I remembered it being. And also, I don't know, even more fun and funny than I remembered it being. I'd forgotten a lot of the stuff, particularly with the men at court and their powdered wigs and the ducks and the like throwing rotten food at the naked guy. It was just, it was wild.
1: Yeah, so The Favourite is a, it's a historical drama. It's a costume drama, I guess, but that feels like it kind of doesn't do it justice. It's a, it's a film about Queen Anne and her two favourites. So Sarah Churchill and Abigail Hill Masham were two women who were both like really important in Anne's kind of reign. They're very close to her and they have this very famous and very public and publicised power struggle between the two of them so Queen Anne has this really interesting reputation where she's kind of mostly seen as a bit of a useless monarch these days and even at the time during her reign like there's a lot of discussion about how kind of powerful she actually is how manipulated she is that sort of thing and so her relationship with Sarah Churchill is very very close they've been friends since they were children and Sarah is very much seen as the power behind the throne Sarah's cousin Abigail comes to court and sort of starts to supplant her and the film takes the power struggle between these two women which in actual fact played out over years and years and kind of compresses it into what feels like maybe six months I don't have a problem with that at all but it's interesting that the kind of tightness of the dramatic effects, events in this film, they could have done it as a kind of like over the course of several years, sort of with time cut jumps and that sort of thing. But the kind of compressedness also feels very appropriate.
0: Yeah, I really liked the way that they, instead of... Instead of doing the years format, the entire film is essentially set up like a book. So it has chapters to it. But the chapters don't come with years. They come with titles that are taken from lines of dialogue within the section. And I found it really fascinating the way that the film relied on formats from written media to structure itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, right from the beginning, the title card is really interesting because they do this thing and they do this with the chapter titles throughout actually where the text is justified, it's not compressed, the letters are spaced out in a really interesting way, which is not something that's necessarily immediately like obvious or worthy of comment, but it is very atmospheric because it makes it slightly harder to read, it makes it slightly kind of stranger and disorienting but it also has the kind of appearance of a 17th century text because of the more unconventional spacing. And I definitely wouldn't have noticed this had I not been watching it with my partner, who is a graphic designer. (laughs) But as soon as they pointed it out, I was like, oh no, this is brilliant. This is so, so great. And yeah, the the use of like writing and text throughout is so important and so fascinating with the use of chapters is not something that I took very seriously when I first saw it, but with, with reflection, like, yeah.
0: Yeah, I totally forgotten that it was even done in sort of a chapter setup. But I think doing that allowed it to have that compactness and tightness that you were talking about, because it sort of allows them to jump cut almost from different tiny storylines and different moments in these women's power struggles, rather than trying to do all one long thing. So we get we get a sense that we're now in like a new day when a chapter starts, but we we don't have to sort of laboriously go through how it's all the little minute things behind it
2: it really does kind of replicate for the viewer the experience of actually going through and and reading a pamphlet and that kind of heightens the sense that you know you're participating in this extremely intrigue driven and gossipy court environment that suckers you in with its little fragmentary pieces of text which are all taken from actual dialogue that you then go on to see each act has a snippet of dialogue which is it's kind of like header and forerunner and so as you progress through these things i think it kind of it does really good work of situating you in that time period and that environment which is very different to the present day and and what most of the audience would be familiar with and it kind of has the effect of giving you this reeks progress through Anne's court, which is really exciting. There's something very novelistic about this film, I think, which is interesting because it is such a profoundly visual piece of work. And, you know, the, the visual of it is absolutely gorgeous. And I know we have so much to say about that, but in the way that it focuses on the inner lives and the sort of progress of these characters through the courtly environment it did make me kind of think of the sort of concurrent unfolding of the novel form that was happening within the literary sphere at that time period and like specifically the character of Abigail who goes through this Gradual progression up the echelons of rank with each of the acts that we see on screen, and kind of she begins as this ingenue figure or someone who's very positive, or at least like intriguing to the viewer, and then gradually as it progresses, you realise that she's kind of like an unreliable narrator, and that's the sort of phrase that I kept coming back to with her, even though she is not the narrator of the film, but. There's something very sort of like melding in the sense of this fiction and this history together.
0: Yeah, I, because of what I study, definitely saw Abigail as a bit of a Cinderella character at the beginning. She's a woman who has been a lady who has fallen really far and who then has to kind of climb her way back up the social ladder And ultimately does it similarly to how Cinderella does it, which is with a fairy godmother in the form of Rachel Weiss, who's wonderful and I love her, Rachel Weiss, however you pronounce it. She's she's amazing. And then with winning the heart of the monarch. So it had like this very like dark twisted Cinderella trajectory that just fascinated me throughout, understandably, since that's my PhD.
1: Yeah, completely. I so one of the things that I was thinking about watching this is the way that they use kind of Abigail's rise and Sarah's fall simultaneously in reality Abigail was working as a servant before she came into Sarah's household but Sarah very much brought her into the household when Anne became queen and so the trajectory is slightly different for dramatic and narrative reasons I truly don't care I am not bringing this up as a criticism of the film I think it is so interesting that you see this kind of threat that she could go back to being in the kitchen and she has these kind of interactions with the servants again and again and it's so great to have this kind of tension of she is insecure her position is not secure and I think that's really great and I think that's a really interesting thing as people kind of move around the physical space of court that that they're kind of on top of each other and interacting with each other and that It's the moment when Sarah says, go back downstairs and ask for permission, position in the scullery, that Abigail is finally like, absolutely fucking not. I am staying here. (laughs) Like, I am going to dig my claws in and I am going to take every little bit of power that I possibly can. And I thought that was really good. I thought that was one of the kind of narrative choice, sort of historical narrative choices that I really appreciated and I thought was very clever.
0: Yeah, I also enjoyed that one of the ways she dug her claws in in that moment when she's told to go back down to the kitchen is by whacking herself in the head with a book. So it like there's so much about like books and their use as uh as sort of indirect stepping stones to power. She's reading a book when she first recognizes the relationship between Sarah and Anne as being a romantic or sexual relationship. Later on, of course, Sarah says something to Abigail like, did you take my book when she's clearly referring to Anne? Just the whole idea of what books mean and literariness in this fascinated me. And I don't have like a solid thesis about what it all means. But I think there's a lot to dig into with it.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that actually they don't include in the film, but is part of the historical narrative, is that Sarah and Anne and Abigail all kind of fight it out through writing. So at one point, Anne, when she kind of sends Sarah away from court, says, there's nothing that you can say, I don't want to hear you say anything, anything you have to say to me, you can put in writing. And so there's this really interesting kind of power dynamic around writing that like, I don't want to listen to you. You can send me letters like anyone else, but you don't have my ear anymore. And there's also some speculation that Sarah might have been the one who commissioned or at least encouraged the pamphlet that then alleged that Anne and Abigail were having a sexual relationship. So Mm. a broadsheet was circulated that was essentially like, the only reason that the Queen could possibly have an interest in this woman is if it's a sexual relationship. Like, Abigail is too stupid to be a, a real advisor. This must be a purely sexual thing. And Sarah seems to have been very connected to the likely authors of that. It's very possible that she was the kind of sponsor of it. And so, I mean, that is not in the film. But the history of them using text and kind of written word fights is so interesting
2: <laughs> and it's fascinating because in the sort of like film light version of that the sort of weapon of text is Sarah threatening to expose not just Anne but also herself in the process of almost revealing the two of them as lovers together to the, wor- to the world and this is kind of treated as the ultimate betrayal and and the ultimate rift it was interesting that the film chose to show Sarah sort of taking agency over her own sexual relationship with the Queen and threatening to blackmail her with it, rather than making the choice to throw Abigail under the bus. Um, And it sort of speaks to the dynamic which was set up in the film, which is Lady Marlborough sort of acting as this dominant top who believes that she can uh, take control of the Queen.
1: Yeah, completely. I mean, I guess there's something really interesting in the way that sex and sexual relationships is used in the film. I was thinking about the way that this is a film that has gay relationships and sex between women. But it's not a queer romance and it's not a kind of like queer historical, which for me certainly has very specific connotations of corsets and yearning, kind of candlelight, fondling, heavy breathing Tender close-ups sort of thing. And the, the sex in this film is just as kind of grotesque and brutal and unromantic as every other part. And I was really... I am really grateful for the fact that this film shows people having kind of gay, questionable relationships where the point is not like, there were gay people in the past. The point is that, like, there are people of all kinds, who do nasty and unpleasant things to each other. And the kind of, like, power dynamics between these characters is made so much stronger when we are not thinking about them in a romantic way, but when we're seeing the kind of, like, use of sex in the same way as we're seeing the use of political power and kind of financial influence and things like that, that it's just, it's just this messy chess game of people being complicated with each other. And the fact that Anne and Sarah have a much more romantic relationship than Anne and Abigail ever have. And it's very clear that they will never have that kind of romantic relationship because it's quite obvious throughout that Anne is at least partially disgusted by the Queen. um, Abigail is at least partially disgusted by the Queen and they don't have the kind of closeness. And I find that really like very, very effective as a way of, of using the kind of sexualities of these characters. Especially like we will never know for certain what the limits of their relationships actually were like we'll never absolutely know what the sexual identity of any of these people were because it doesn't matter anyway but we can take the kind of potential for a very intense a very close romantic friendship i guess and also explore like the way that sex and power were used within that and i just think it's great this is one of the only films i can think of where i'm like yeah absolutely play fast and loose with the sexualities of historical characters. I think it's great. I think it's really effective.
0: Yeah, I thought the same. First of all, yeah, we can never know the sexual identities. And even if we could go back in time and ask them, the terminology wouldn't exist. Like the ideas, you know, what comes first, the the language or the idea kind of thing. Um, just like the whole idea of sexuality in the past was so different from where we're at today. Um, but, I agree I thought it was really interesting the the bluntness of the relationship between Sarah and Anne from Sarah's point where she would tell the queen there's a scene very early on where the queen comes out in some what she calls dramatic makeup <laughs> and clearly Anne thinks that she looks great and Sarah just looks at her and says who did your makeup you look like a badger and Anne gets so upset and And Sarah shows her, gets out a mirror and is like, what do you think you look like? And she's like, a badger. And then she like sadly goes back (laughs) to take the makeup off. There's also a moment later on where the queen... It sort of faints but contrives to faint during a parliament meeting when she doesn't want to she feels she'll be embarrassed making an announcement and afterwards she gets upset and says I heard someone say fat and ugly and Sarah says no one would dare accept me and I didn't and that just it's cracked so me funny. up. It's it's
1: really yeah because their relationship is not their relationship is not a healthy one. No. <laughs> I think that's one of the other reasons that I like this <laughs> film is that you cannot you cannot look at this and be like, oh, I feel so represented. Mm-mm. You can't look at this and be like, wow, that's romantic. And frankly, the tendency of the queer community to be like, ah, oh, yes, any kind of women attracted to other women, that's representation. And the way that that has happened to, for example, the history of Anne Lister drives me up the fucking wall. But you mm. cannot look at this film and be like, I really relate to this woman with gout having sex with her maid. You can't look at this and be like, this is romantic. And you cannot fantasize about it. You are just presented with this very like aggressive, very blunt relationship. No one is being represented here. No one is being pandered to.
2: And that makes me really happy. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. I think that something which really comes across in this film is they haven't approached it with the agenda of imposing narratives onto historical figures in a very idealized way, the primary function of the dialogue and the choreography and the the sort of interpersonal dynamics between all of these characters is to just give the impression that they're really really human as people. And so there's there's this very kind of naturalistic, quite contemporary feeling dialogue and discourse between all these characters that are a really fantastic reminder that like these are human beings and they're having like real human relationships.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. Because I think one of the things that this film does so well and that obviously everyone was really enthralled by at the time is the way that it fucks with period. So the the dialogue, but also the costuming and the aesthetics of the whole film are so interesting. There is a lot to say about the costuming. Let's start with the dialogue.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think something that... I really really appreciated about this watching it on my my second time around was how they have melded together the period dialogue that is more kind of historical sounding and at least somewhat historically accurate with little Intercut, interspersed phrases and words that are taken direct from the 21st century. And it kind of does this thing, which is really fun, of repositioning, as I say, this sort of naturalism. So you get really aggressive use of the word cunt, which I love because cunt is one oh, yeah. of so yeah. my favourite words, which I think of as being quite a historical thing, even though that has been like. Framed by media in a way to be like very cunty for lack of a better word but they also do these really funny like 21st century phrases like Sarah says to Harley this foppish politician played by Nicholas Holt that you smell like a whore's vajuju and uh, I would have to get someone you know whores of your or someone to, to check up on this and and confirm but I don't think vajuju was being used in the time of Queen Anne. I think that is a purely 21st century piece of um, linguistic
1: filth, and I love to hear it. It's so good. And it does this really effective thing of being a little act of translation that, that most of the dialogue feels period appropriate, feels appropriate to the characters. When they say things with this very modern turn of phrase, it feels appropriate to their character, but it also feels fitting within the film as this kind of like little bit of sort of almost like dubbed in modern dialogue that instead of her saying something convoluted about you know like you could translate whores for juju very directly into 17th century english and it would be fine it would probably be something about cunnies that's okay (laughs) but (laughs) it feels like it's been kind of like dropped in as this kind of like little bit of translation to make things quite easy and quite tidy for a modern audience. But it doesn't feel jarring, and I love it so much.
0: Yeah, I think maybe the one thing that does feel jarring, quote-unquote, is the dancing in the film. Um, (laughs) And I remember when the film came out that this was sort of the scene that was in the trailer is this really... Ridiculous dance that I wouldn't even say looks particularly modern. <laughs> it's not that it's like, oh, they're doing a modern dance. Well, unless you're thinking in like the formal term of modern dance or like interpretive dance, but it's definitely not 17th century. And uh, at this ball that they go to, Sarah is dancing, I believe, with Masham at that point, maybe Harley, yes. but I think Masham, yeah. yeah. And uh, it is a it, they're like waving their hands in a weird way, and they're doing like almost crab they're voguing, walking. Abigail, they're voguing. No, they were doing that at one point. I don't. <laughs> wait, sorry, this is not a visual medium. I am waving my hands in front of my face in a really ridiculous way that is absolutely not voguing. We were
2: doing the classic woodland creature paw flap.
0: Okay,
1: there, there, I'm okay. sorry, I take it back.
0: <laughs> um, but I do remember seeing that in the trailer and having a lot of people be like, what is this? This can't be a period film at all. If they're doing dancing like this, it's going to be weird and ahistorical. And it's like, no, that seems brilliant.
1: <laughs> it's in the grand tradition of the best historical film ever, A Knight's Tale. Yes. And it's, it's so great. I mean, it is jarring. It is weird. But I think that it feels really nice in a way because... So many period films have the kind of scene at the ball where everyone is doing their like fucking square dancing and like gently holding hands and pacing up and down. And I find them so weird to watch because they're always far too, those scenes are always far too long. They're always there purely for atmosphere. And it's always to be like, don't forget this is the past and it's so like (laughs) whack 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 over the head with fucking netherfield ball shit and it drives me up the wall because everyone Mm -hmm. tries to do it and no one does it in an interesting way and i thought this was funny because it takes the inherent absurdity of organized dance (laughs) and just really like goes (laughs) absolutely to town on how surreal and insane all of this stuff is
0: Yes. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting moment of of bringing in a modern aesthetic uh, in a way that that does not recall the past but they they counterpose that that ridiculous dance with this really intense close-up of Olivia Colman that is maybe one of the best shots of the entire film. She is watching Sarah dancing with Masham and she's arrived at the ball super excited. She can't wait to party and you just like watch her face as her her eyes slowly fill with tears. You can almost see what she's thinking, just that she doesn't belong, like all kinds of emotion. It's a gorgeous shot.
1: And that's cut with the fact that when she arrives at this ball, she's like she's so excited. She pulls up her skirt to be like, don't you like my stockings? Aren't they festive? And you can see that she's bleeding, bleeding. through them. Yeah. And it's such a, like, Mm. absolute smack in the face because everything else at that point is so stylized. We've had these little glimpses of the fact that she's sick, but in that moment you're like, oh my god, she knows that she's unwell. And she's facing this kind of, like, very intense humiliation of everyone else dancing. And someone that she deeply, deeply loves dancing without her and that's just like a very intense feeling honestly olivia coleman is a fucking queen she's so good in this she does so much acting purely with her bottom lip mm-hmm. just like whether she's kind of sucking on it whether she's pouting whether at the end of the film when she kind of like drags her face down because she's the hand's had a stroke by that point and it's just like so so well done
2: i think it really I think it really speaks to the way they kind of like conveyed the naturalism of her character within the film. Because we've sort of talked about these romantic relationships and how they're de romanticised almost in kind of the opposite of the conventional, but they were lesbians, Harold's period drama structure. I think the film and Olivia Coleman, like specifically, being such a powerhouse, it does so much to convey how Queen Anne, as like a person with extreme trauma, has difficulty loving in a conventional way. In a sense, she really only feels love for things which are very very bad for her and when she has these moments of sincere love and sincere emotion they trigger something in her they trigger this expectation and this response of pain so she starts out that scene in the ballroom feeling really happy and excited to spend time with her lover stroke friend in the dance and and in the music and you see in real time her face change and shift and she kind of like almost goes into this panic attack. Mm-hmm. And there's a later scene that that also kind of replicates this, where she's very happily watching a concert in her gardens. And it's a, a quartet of children playing string instruments. And you can see in her face, she's happy. She's elated. She's involved with, these, with this scene in this intense way and feeling the beauty of it. And then there's a complete shift. And she emotionally goes off the rails. She physically runs away, which is very hard for her because her body doesn't really allow her to do that. She's limping and, and collapsing and physically running away. And all of the way the little ways that they convey, not just that she's a person who's clearly not mentally well, but someone who's like carrying around this intense emotional trauma. Her body holds this memory of having lost her children, having lost her spouse and it sort of reshapes the way she loves and I feel like that, like that's really relevant to how the love triangle if you want to call it that between Sarah and Abigail um, sort of unfolds is that initially Sarah is the one who has a somewhat toxic relationship with the Queen and as Abigail begins to supplant her it becomes clear that Abigail is even more toxic and so Anne sort of moves towards her in in search of this exquisite pain that is more exhilarating to her than having to face up to real emotions. And Olivia Coleman does so much to convey all that. She really is brilliant.
0: Yeah, I feel like the thing that you said about having lost the children, that's a very small discussion within. Like it overhangs the entire film. But there's really only one conversation about it. And Olivia Coleman sells it in like three lines and it's it's just so brilliant and such a a huge tribute to like what a great actress she is but yeah in real life Anne lost 17 or 18 children the oldest I believe lived to be 12 before he died but most of them died much much younger or were still born and <laughs> and okay, slight tangent. The reason I know about the one that lived to 12 is that in Williamsburg, Virginia, the main street is called Duke of Gloucester Street after that ah. son that died. The Yeah, the so the scene where she sort of admits to Abigail
1: that she has these these rabbits that she keeps kind of in tribute to her children is really interesting because until that point, we've sort of seen the rabbits in the background. We've seen Sarah say, I think it's morbid to have these rabbits. Like, I won't pet them. I won't engage with them. I think it's morbid. But we haven't had any kind of explanation of why she thinks it's morbid. And so we've only so far seen Sarah being like, no, I think it's weird and gross and I don't like it. And once you know the kind of actual context of this, once you see this kind of explanation for why she keeps the rabbits and what they mean to her that takes on a very different impact because it is morbid, it is weird and it is morbid that she keeps these rabbits named after her children and it's clearly an expression of grief and trauma but also Sarah's not wrong and I think that's one of the film things that this film does so brilliantly is that no one is right, like there are no good guys but there are also people who are that people are right and wrong at the same time and and that's fascinating and very well done and very unusual it really serves to highlight the differences in the two kinds
2: of love that the women give to Anne there's Sarah's form of love which is not in any way pandering she's trying to cut through her delusions and make her face reality and for Sarah that's the way that she expresses love to her partner um it has the unfortunate effect of being really brutal and sort of emotionally damaging Anne further when she's this sort of very sensitive person who needs protection in many ways. But then on the other hand, you have Abigail who pays lip service to all of Anne's delusions and Anne engages with them and refers to the rabbits as the children, which on the surface is, you know, very affirming towards Anne, but as we come to understand, all of that is a performance. All of that is a front. And it's brought home so viscerally in, in the final scene where you actually see Abigail just very casually put her high-heeled shoe on a rabbit and press it into the floor until it screams, um, which Anne, unknown to Abigail, actually witnesses. And it kind of just shows to you these two forms of love which Anne is receiving neither of which are really giving her what she needs. She is a woman that has very complicated needs, kind of through no fault of her own. And, you know, neither of these people is exactly giving her what she needs.
1: Should we talk about the styling of the film? So, I mean, the costumes are absolutely incredible the way that it's filmed uses a lot of like weird upward angles very intense close-ups like very intense chiaroscuro lighting fisheye lenses which is so great and just very fun and there's this really kind of surreal aesthetic to the whole thing and that comes across brilliantly in the costumes so almost all of the clothing is black and white except for the servants who are in denim some of the politicians are in red and there's this really cool kind of High contrast, highly stylized look to the whole thing. Yeah, it, it
2: brings home the sort of cohesion of palace life really, really effectively. The fact that they were able to do everything in black and white, I imagine, freed them up so much budget wise so that they could really work with mm. like patterns and shapes and textures, ensuring that sort of everyone in every scene was of a piece in a very cohesive way. I read somewhere that the black and white color palette was inspired by the checkerboard floors of the palace, which kind of just shows that really nice like bringing of the the characters and the background actors into alignment with the environment which is cool. But something else that I was thinking of about this was like we haven't really touched on this very much at all so far, but constantly churning in the backdrop of this human drama between Queen Anne and Sarah and Abigail is the war with France, which is informing the political intrigues that are happening at court. So I think something else that the, the black and white gowns really do well is conveying the sense that actually they're in a time of austerity and these incredibly wealthy and privileged people don't really have a register for understanding what austerity means so they're still living this like extremely expensive and luxuriant lifestyle and only the black and white costumes these very simple monochromes show that actually this is a very serious time and a time of restraint
0: yeah i agree with all of that i also just love that Even though these are very stylized costumes with patterns that were not used at all at the time, it's all grafted onto a fairly accurate silhouette for the time period. So everything looks, silhouette-wise pretty perfect and it's frankly a very sexy silhouette it it's very structured everybody looks so put together and fantastic and I can't help right now but compare it to Bridgerton uh, which has come out recently which does not have particularly um, accurate costuming and while yes the Regency was a much less structured time fashion wise uh (laughs) Bridgerton doesn't even come close to the correct silhouette. Okay, I guess it comes close, but it doesn't it doesn't get the correct silhouette. And it was just like such so, so interesting to look at like what you can do when you say we're doing anachronism within costuming and what creative directions that can go with colors and with stylization without having to like fundamentally change the actual silhouette of the time period. So you still feel this real sense of place and time.
1: Absolutely. And the, yeah, the shape is so evocative the really constricted but also very exaggerated lovely bits of like décolletage and cleavage everyone's got sexy little chokers on it gives you the permission to then also be really accurate with the men's costumes in terms of their kind of absolutely fucking unhinged wigs that just get bigger and weirder and keeping this kind of very Restrained, very limited silhouette and palette means that the costume details stand out so much more. Like nine mm-hmm. times out of 10, you're filming something set in the 18th or 19th, 6th, 17th or 18th centuries, and you're going to end up with things that look like they're made out of fucking brocade curtains because everyone's yeah. like, ah, oh, it's got to be lush. And so you get the big skirts <laughs> and the kind of padded things. And this came up when we did the episode on dangerous beauty, which is mm. st- 16th, 17th century Italy. And again, it's fairly accurate in terms of the shaping, but the way that they deal with that is that everything looks like it's made out of a fucking damask curtain. And it's all very like intense and over the top, color and texture, but it looks tacky. And it looks like plastic velvet because it is plastic velvet. Whereas with this, when you just have the black and white, the use of the, the like, laser-cut vinyl, the use of denim, the use of, like, very synthetic materials is so good because it feels so much more deliberate. And you can be way more precise with what you're doing. Yes. Everything feels much more conscious. Mm-hmm. It's so atmospheric. It's
0: so evocative. Yeah. And I especially liked when they put Sarah in menswear. <laughs> uh, yes! She's just sexy as hell once they put that menswear on her and she's strutting around in those boots and that like riding coat thing. Oh my gosh. It's so um, good. It's amazing. <laughs> Love it. Um, but I feel like that's also interesting and in sort of its play with gender as well. Uh, in that we have like the, within the role play with Anne and, sarah's relationship they have these personas that are men mr morley and mr freeman although sometimes she says mrs morley so yeah the so, morley persona goes both ways so
1: mrs morley and mrs freeman were the names that they actually used to refer to each other as a way of kind of getting out of the power dynamic of being queen and servant and I love that they use that throughout. They never explain it. It's just immediately obvious that this is a kind of like little game that they have. And when they go to the mud bath, which is also a hilarious scene, they draw moustaches on their faces with the mud and start to refer to each other as Mr. Morley and Mr. Freeman. And I think it's great. I just think it's so good. And very funny, especially... Anne is a sexless character throughout this film. She is not strongly gendered in a binary way and i think that one of the things they do very well is that she always looks kind of absurd when she's in very feminine clothing she's always overly made up or kind of under made up in a way that makes her seem very kind of disheveled and 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 blank and they are playing quite effectively with the fact that as queen and at this time as a widowed queen who is ruling in her own right she has to take on these particular kinds of masculinity There's a really interesting political history of, like, what do you do with female monarchs who don't have children, right? And the way that when you have a queen, particularly a woman ruling in her own right, overwhelmingly, in British history at least, they have also not had children, whether that's been through being unmarried or infertility or anything like that. And so there's this real kind of, like, mindfuck that people have around the idea that, like, well, when you become a monarch, you kind of become a man, And they do that so well that when she's having these kind of sexual relationships and things like that, the power dynamics there are very, very striking. There's a scene right at the end of the film where having just seen Abigail squash the rabbit, she forces Abigail to kneel in front of her and rub her legs. And in doing that, she kind of grabs her hair and the kind of motion of it is like, It's like a scene of kind of face fucking or like very intense oral sex and the hair pulling and the kind of like bobbing of the heads and things like that is so interesting because it makes it look like she's kind of simulating a blowjob on her in a Mm -hmm. really violent and really unpleasant way. But that brings out this question of like gender is very flexible within this film, which is so, so cool.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that moment at the very end there, something else that was very f- interesting was the the end scene of it is that they sort of merge Anne and Abigail's faces in in an inner cut kind of way. I know there's a technical technical term for it, but I can't think of what it is. And then they add the rabbits in, so you can see all three in various levels of opacity at once. And I found that last moment particularly powerful. But before they do that, there's just a close-up on Abigail's face for a while with her hair being pulled. And it feels like at that moment, you kind of see that she understands what Sarah meant earlier when Sarah said, like, that you haven't actually won this game. Because Abigail thought that she could control Anne the way that Sarah had been sort of managing things for Anne. Mm. And while Sarah and Anne's relationship is by no means a healthy one, I do think there's real affection and real love in that relationship. And it's founded on respect as well. Yeah. And, And you see this
1: scene and you're like, well, that would definitely never happen to Sarah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And... And there's a moment, too, where Abigail says something like, I've already won the game. And Sarah says, you and I were playing different games. And like, that's that really comes home in that moment at the very end where you sort of see that Abigail realizes that she she may have like one material comfort, but she hasn't actually got anything that matters.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And Abigail and Masham do eventually have this kind of fall from grace they don't. They are not able to sort of maintain themselves in this position of power and I think that's very effectively implied without having to go into a huge amount of detail that you you feel clearly that this is an insecure position that she will never actually be safe and you know Abigail is also a character that's bringing you a huge amount of trauma here she talks a mm-hmm. lot about her kind of history of sexual abuse the fact that she has been sort of used and treated particularly badly by her father and by other men in her life and the kind of desire for security is palpable from all of these women but they seek it in different ways and they achieve different kinds of security and i think that's where i i think this film is so brilliant is that like yeah no one wins everyone loses everyone's just losing in different ways all the time and it's it's yeah it's oh it's just so good <laughs>
0: Yeah, I thought sort of the there was there was a looming sense of threat over yes. the entire film, whether that was from sexual assault, which was a huge threat looming over the whole film, I thought. And in almost every one of these women's interactions with men um, and then also just like the threat of of that austerity of the war of losing the war um of falling from a position of being back in the kitchens burning your hands with lie, oh like it which was a horrible <laughs> yeah um like it just feels like every every bit of it was about there's no there's no security the whole film is a threat
1: <laughs> yeah and no one gets to feel safe. And like, even Anne doesn't feel safe. Even Anne has all of this kind of power and control, apparent control. And she's still being kind of yelled at and manipulated. She's still answering to these men who keep coming in and asking for things. Um, I would love to talk about the representation of, of men in this film. I think we've explored the, the way that the women are presented and particularly the kind of gender flexibility within their representation. I am so fascinated by these very camp representations of masculinity. (laughs) I love Prime Minister Godolphin and his duck, (laughs) for example.
2: The duck apparently is a real historical fact which I thought was really, really fun. Supposedly, Godolphin really did love duck racing and and kept a beloved duck. I don't know if he walked it round with him at all moments of the day. I think that was a little bit of stylized um, film wizardry, but it it really happened, it seems, and and that makes me really happy. That's That's amazing.
0: I loved sort of what they did, particularly with Harley's character, with the powdered face the makeup the wig and the way that he was the most ostentatious of the men but every man in there was pretty ostentatious and sort of the way that that contrasted with the the structure and simple lines of the women in the cast was really fascinating and honestly these men just all seemed kind of buffoonish. Yes. None of them really were contributing anything to the kingdom. It was all about the three female leads. But I thought the scene in particular with the man who was dancing around in a high pink wig with makeup on and having rotten fruit thrown at him. It was just a real image. <laughs> that It's insane. That
1: sequence <laughs> yeah. is... Yeah, just one of the most like arresting of the whole thing because you have this kind of very clownish figure in nothing but a wig being pelted with oranges. Meanwhile, everyone's talking about the land tax and how terrible things are and the fact that people are rioting in Leeds. And they're like, yes, but we're going to take some time out of our day (laughs) to throw citrus (laughs) at a man in a wig.
2: It really kind of shows um, Harley's hypocrisy, I think, that he has this very po faced attitude of feigned concern about uh, the landowners and the riots and the public opinion of the war. And yet, in this rarefied environment in the palace, he is leading the charge of throwing rotten fruit at this nude man. It also kind of brings home, like... The separation of the gendered spheres between the different sort of ruling classes. The women are very serious and the men
1: are this. Completely. Nicholas Holt is so camp and so good at camp. Like this particular sort of preening aesthetic. He is just brilliant at it. And rewatching this actually made me want to go and watch The Great because I get the impression that he's playing a similarly kind of decadent and frivolous character in that, and I hadn't been super like sold on watching the Great, but now I'm like, oh no, I, I think he would I think he's fun,
0: yes, I can confirm he is great. <laughs> Yeah, I also felt like uh, sort of what you were saying about the the interspersion of these riots and leads with the with the man being pelted with fruit. It reminded me of the montages throughout this, and we don't actually see any of the the public issues going on everything really takes entirely takes place within the palace except for a brief sojourn to a whorehouse but the the way these montages worked and sort of the tension that was built through the soundtrack with like this one note on I think a violin but I'm not great at recognizing my guess was
1: a harpsichord Ooh, okay there yeah. we go interesting because it had that kind of like percussive string sound mm-hmm. that it's it like did. It's maybe a pianoforte or a harps chord where it's got that like dung 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 and it's so weird and spooky and also brilliant (laughs) it builds a powerful sense of dread oh boy it
0: does does it ever and it also like felt like time passing it was like a clock in a way like it was just brilliant
1: helen i feel like we're getting towards your wheelhouse now the sound design and the styling and the like filmography of this is so interesting and it makes it feel the whole thing feels very like quite druggy in a way in that it's got Mm. this kind of like people are often drunk people are often like eating insane amounts of sugar people are kind of like fucking with their bodies in a really interesting way and the kind of representation of illness and decadence Mm. within this sort of distorted disorienting filmography is so effective
2: yeah I would say that it's even hallucinogenic actually and I think that a lot of you know all the stuff that Yorgos Lanthimos does with the, the fisheye lens, which on the one hand can make stuff feel very claustrophobic and confined, it also has this distortion effect which kind of makes you feel like you're hallucinating in these heightened spaces. People are taking a lot of like drugs in there. Um, like people you know are obviously they're drinking wine, but they're also getting poisoned, and they're also like rubbing herbs all over themselves for either painkiller effects um or mainly painkiller effects, <laughs> but um, you know there's also like as you say, the queen is like eating sugar until she pukes it's it's a very heightened state and and yeah, I think. All the different filmographic components come together to really like give
1: the impression of that heightened state. Absolutely. I think that this kind of question of the way that... This is a clunky phrase. The way that Anne sort of abuses herself mm-hmm. um, and the particular ways that she seems to kind of seek cathartic pain, I guess, the kind of emotional torment and things like that. When she sort of takes this baby, she has this very like clearly sort of self-harming relationship to her own health in that she has this awful scene where she's eating cake and vomiting and then goes straight back to eating cake. And I think the representation there of kind of like, yeah, a a sort of addictive self-harm is really heightened because that scene with the cake and the vomiting is one of very few that's shot kind of close but on a straight, single, kind of fixed camera. It doesn't have any weird stuff going on. It's just a very immediate and direct shot. And that stands out so much within this film full of like weird artistry to see this moment of kind of self-harm presented in such a like blank and matter-of-fact way really heightens it. And it's funny that, that this kind of like heightening comes from the straightness of the filming.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's something so visceral about seeing Olivia Colman's Anne vomiting into a vase that some poor serving person has to come and run up with and you can see like, from the look on this person's face that it is their sort of sole role in their work is to be the, vom- the vomitorium standby when the queen takes a mood to eat cake and sugared fruits and then you get this close-up of Anne's face and she has vomit in her hair and blue icing down her front and then she takes another bite of the cake and it is so visceral and you're so in there with her it's a very sensory experience and as you say I think the directness of that is is what makes it so fucking awful
0: yeah and sort of like the parallels of self-harm but also like just the fact that it feels like sugar might be where she gets literally her only joy Mm -hmm. and that's really sad you know like she wants the hot chocolate and uh sarah says no you can't have hot chocolate you'll be sick and she's like what no give me the hot chocolate and she drinks it and sarah just says like okay fine but you're gonna have to like deal with somebody's gonna have to clean up after you later and it and then, like, when she's in the mud bath, she says, what if I should slip under? And uh, and Abigail says, well, just pretend it's hot chocolate. And she's like, oh, then I shall die happy. And it's like, it feels like literally the only thing that makes her happy is is the sugar, which is, like, what makes her really sick. And, of course, that then sort of feels like a parallel for her toxic relationships. They They make her life sweet at times, but then she ends up getting sick from them.
1: Mm, Yeah, I would love to kind of follow on from that to talk a little bit about the casting in this Olivia Colman is an incredible actor and she does such a good job as Anne I think the way that they treat the representation of illness and she handles that very very well she shows someone who is kind of like at war with their body in a way that's very very evocative Um, they make it clear from the beginning that Anne is sick And her sickness is not presented as any kind of like moral failing or reflective of her choices in life at all. It's just that she is someone who is unwell and I'm grateful for that. I think it's very rare to see illness as a metaphor done sensitively. And it's obviously rooted in this very real fact. I have been googling the symptoms of gout and it's just awful. And it's so heartbreaking to see this character in kind of clear, real pain throughout the film. And Common does that brilliantly. They are talking about her as this kind of like fat and repulsive and complicated person at war with her body. And it's done really sensitively.
2: I'm a person who absolutely loves to see messy women on screen and in media. And Same. I would almost characterize Anne. The other characters look at her quite frequently as something repulsive. But I feel like the audience is never encouraged to see her as repulsive in that way. We experience her as this messy, emotional very sick woman and, and there's sympathy there and, and commonality there you know and, and, and honestly like in terms of the casting it's interesting because I think Olivia Coleman is like stunningly beautiful and it's very hard for me to conceive of her the way the film sets her up as ugly as literally enrobed in rotting meat sort of decaying away but it Shows the power of Olivia Coleman's performance, I think, and the things that she does with her face, the ways she moves her body, all of it conveys like physical and emotional turmoil in this really clever way. That even though she is still a beautiful person, it is hard to watch because I think by nature, like the human mind often shies away from looking at other human beings in that degree of pain it's a fantastic performance and very clever very clever casting especially when she's surrounded by what you might term like the most conventionally beautiful actors and actresses
1: yeah i think one of the things that that's so well done about that is the way that they sort of present... Yeah, everyone sees her as kind of, like, strange and unbeautiful and kind of ugly and that sort of thing. And they show her as in this very uncomfortable clothing as well she never seems as kind of at ease in her clothes as everyone else does she never gets to sort of sweep gracefully down a hallway she's always being sort of lugged around and pulled into things when they bring in the sort of braces for her to wear so she can go riding it's this like weird constrictive metal corset and leg braces to keep her on the horse and you have this sense that she is like being forced into this particular aesthetic that clearly does not suit her. You know, she doesn't look good in these clothes. And Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone both look good in these clothes. They are both styled in a very beautiful way. They get nice makeup. They get to look good. Whereas the characterization of Anne as performed by Olivia Coleman, you get this really strong sense that she does not feel comfortable in this body and also in the way that she has to then dress that body to be at court and that is very evocative of the experience of being yeah being at odds with your physical self whether that's through illness or kind of dysphoria and dysmorphia the sense of like not recognizing the person that you have to present is so intense and so rarely shown on film
0: it's interesting when you were saying that emma stone and rachel are made up very well And Anne in one of the first scenes that we see her has the the badger makeup on and she other other points has like very garish makeup on and it actually is much more akin to what the men at court are wearing. And it's a really fascinating sort of parallel of maybe that kind of gender or sexual dysphoria also with being queen above all the men, but also still a woman. Like, it, I think there's a lot going on with how they're styling her to be sort of in a, in a in an in-between space.
1: One thing that I actually looked up is because of that, I think the ways that like sickness can really impact your body, they show the sort of premature aging of Anne in a really effective way. I looked it up, um, Sarah was five years older than Anne and Rachel Vice is actually four years older than Olivia Coleman. So in terms of the age gaps between them, it's very, very appropriate. And I think does add to the sense that that she has had like this huge trauma enacted on her body. She's had these miscarriages, she's had these failed pregnancies, she's had these children. And the, the way that that has like clearly impacted herself and her kind of sense of her body and has aged her very dramatically is so effective and so kind of well-expressed
0: yeah i agree Mm, it's
1: it's beautifully done it's really brilliantly acted i did not expect to enjoy emma stone (laughs) i think i very much have this image of her as a kind of like quite like fluffy hollywood sort of styling and she's really good in this she takes this role and really goes with it so so well rachel vice is obviously an incredible actor like i would watch her in anything olivia coleman likewise she's brilliant and she's just so so good and yeah i mean nicholas holt is actually kind of like the standout star in this i adore him (laughs) he's so great And the kind of the little side characters that you get as well in the form of, I cannot remember his name, Mr. Taylor Swift.
0: Joe Alwyn.
1: Thank you. I did not realize
2: he was Mr. Taylor Swift and once you've pointed that out it just makes me really
1: happy.
0: Yeah, same.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mr. Taylor Swift voguing and, like, fucking around on horses and just generally being, like, so overwhelmed and out of his depth. And, oh my God, the scene where he has <laughs> just married Abigail and she's like, I'm too busy scheming to have sex with you. And so she gives him this, like, incredibly awkward, incredibly angry hand job. The world's just most so half-hearted hand job. She's not even looking at him. <laughs> she's not even looking at him. <laughs> she's literally just, like, <laughs> jerking away <laughs> (laughs) while she schemes and he's like groaning in the background that scene is brilliant and it really drives home this point throughout the film that like sex is not the sex in this film is not very sexy no the sex in this film is very tightly connected to pain and power and control and that just absolutely reinforces the way that I feel like this is the only gay historical drama that I think takes the question of romantic friendship the flexibility of sexuality and gender and the idea of not looking for representation in the past and does it so well that yeah the sex is unsexy even the straight sex is unsexy and it's just such a relief to see that that they're not even going to try and like give us some panting and no one kisses in this film apart from Anne and Sarah yeah they get the only like romantic kiss and it's so
0: good. Oh, there is like one very unromantic uh kiss with Sarah's husband. Where he's oh. like, kiss me before I go to war and she just sort of like very perfunctorily kisses. Yeah.
1: Him. And <laughs> but I yeah. guess Abigail and Masham kiss in the forest and then she immediately knees him in the
0: dig. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um but no, the only romantic feeling kiss at all is Anne and Sarah.
2: On the note of casting, I also just wanted to say the casting of um James Smith as Godolphin I thought was like a really really clever decision because I primarily know him as Glenn Cullen from the Thick of It and I think in terms of like situating the political intrigue of this film I think that that was like a brilliant casting decision because he seamlessly slips into a very very similar political role of this slightly ridiculous political figure a little bit heartwarming a little bit pompous and he just functions really well within that narrative so while we pay lip service to all the big stars i want to shout out godolphin as well
1: that's brilliant i didn't i haven't seen that so i didn't pick up on that but now you've said that that's like a really nice little (laughs) that's so great um my favorite character is the duck (laughs) it's so good (laughs) why how can there be people who like train ducks to be in films like this how is, that, how is that a thing? That That's duck incredible. should have won an Oscar. That duck shouldn't have been at the Oscars. Why didn't they bring the duck to the Oscars?
0: <laughs> he could have given out an award.
1: Yeah, he should have been hosting. <laughs> I think we have to stop.
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's so much We've to say. We've expressed
1: our love for ducks. This is such a good film. It's so worth watching. It's so perfectly hits, like, all of the notes of what we love on this show and I think is the best encapsulation of atmosphere over accuracy that I've ever seen. And to me, honestly, like, everything that we watch for the podcast, I'm always kind of keeping in my mind this, like, trifecta of fun, accurate, and atmospheric. Mm -hmm. And I think this has just enough of the accuracy to balance the fun and the atmosphere in a really good way. I will always go for atmosphere over accuracy, but I think this really like is almost perfectly balanced between the three. It's such a good film.